Would you stand with me now as we consider uh, Psalm 80? I want to read the whole psalm this morning. And, and so we want to read here the word of the Lord. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh. Stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God. Let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls? So that all who pass along the way may pluck its fruit. The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our opportunity to gather as the people of God in this place and worship you. We thank you for this Advent season where we remember the coming of our Messiah and look longingly to the fulfillment of our salvation. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. We thank you, God, that when we cry out to you in the desperation of our sin, you hear our prayer and forgive us of our sins. Father, would you turn your face to shine upon us now, we pray, as we consider your saving Messiah. We ask this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Last week, I probably had more people come and talk to me after the service uh, about some definitive statements I made about Christmas movies than I did about the actual text that I preached. Maybe that was the most memorable part. So because of that, I thought, well, I'll just double down. Let's talk about Christmas movies some more here at the beginning of the sermon. Um, I really was looking for a way to introduce this sermon by saying that Die Hard is not a Christmas movie but I couldn't figure out how to make it work. But I still believe that. Come and, come and see me after as I'll explain why. But let's talk about one that probably most of us have seen because I do think this, this helps us a little bit. 
um, in the 1990s, uh, the movie Home Alone was released. And Home Alone teaches us some things. First off, it teaches us that there's some children in that family and likely even some adults that needed a spanking. It would have made things a lot better. But the premise of the movie really is that Kevin, the main character, Macaulay Culkin, believes he can do life alone. That he didn't need his older brothers and sisters, of which he had many, most of which were bullies, parents, aunts and uncles, the uncle definitely a bully, leading to Kevin making this wish, I wish that my family would disappear. And while it seems during the movie in a very comedic way that Kevin does okay on his own, taking care of the house, shopping, even fending off would-be thieves, we end up ultimately seeing at the end that Kevin can't do everything on his own and needs saving. Ultimately, his salvation found in the old man with a shovel whom Kevin feared on his block and finally being restored to his family, which was always throughout the movie trying to get back to him. Home Alone's actually a pretty good opening illustration for this text because this text is the cry of the people of God, Old Testament Israel, who so often in their history acted exactly like Kevin in Home Alone. They believed they could do it on their own. They so often wanted to go it alone like the surrounding nations around them. They felt they did not need to keep the statutes of the Lord and do what he had commanded. They did not seek him as their king, but sought earthly rulers, most of whom were wicked men who led them astray wanting to do it their own way. But what do we find in the story? Time and again in the Old Testament story, we are told that the people of God could not do it alone. They were utterly helpless without God. And that is what this Psalm today, Psalm 80, focuses on. It is a cry from the people of God to the Lord, to restore them, to save them, because they have found themselves in a hopeless situation, in a moment where while they had tried to go alone, they realized they were unable to do so. And the psalmist prays for the people, this corporate prayer, that God would save them. We see in this psalm that the Lord alone can save. The Lord is addressed here in this psalm in verse 1 as the shepherd of Israel. We know that this is a prayer because the psalm begins with give ear, asking the Lord to hear them. And then the Lord is called, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned above the cherubim, shine forth. How the Lord is described in a psalm tells us a lot about the purpose of that psalm and its meaning. Here, the Lord is the shepherd of Israel. 
It is only in this psalm that the Lord is referred to in this way, although the Lord is called a shepherd in the Psalter and elsewhere in the Old Testament. But only here is he called the shepherd of Israel. In the ancient Near East, to be called the shepherd of a nation was synonymous with being called the king of that nation. This psalm is a request for an audience with the king of Israel, with the shepherd of Israel. They are crying out that their king would hear them. Because the true king of Israel is not an earthly king who sits in a worldly throne, but is a heavenly king who sits in a heavenly throne, enthroned above the cherubim. This cry is not looking to the palace in Jerusalem. It is looking to the holy of holies on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the presence of God amongst his people in the wilderness going before them ultimately being placed in the holy place in the temple of God on top of that ark had two angels. That's what a cherubim is. If you're new to this kind of biblical language, this is a type of angel. These angels had large wings that were stretched out across the ark of the covenant. And so this cry is not to the palace, it's to the temple to their king who is enthroned above the cherubim, to the shepherd of Israel, the people of God are crying out to their king. Verse two, this cry continues before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Ephraim, Benjamin, and Asa, along with Joseph, who has already been mentioned, representing all of the people, the sons of Rachel, marched directly behind the Ark of the Covenant during the Exodus and the desert wandering. By the time of this psalm's writing, however, Benjamin was no more. It had been absorbed into the southern kingdom of Judah. Ephraim and Manasseh were no more. They had been conquered along with the northern kingdom in Israel by the Assyrians. These tribes, so rich in heritage, no longer existed on the face of the earth. And the psalmist cries out on behalf of the people to their king, come to save us. This is the message of Psalm 80. It is a cry for salvation. It is a cry out to the king of kings, the shepherd of Israel, to come and to save his people. They are alone, thinking they could do it themselves, and realizing they can't turn to the only one who can save them, and cry to him, come and save us. This message is repeated three times in this psalm. Verse three, verse seven, verse 19, all repeat one refrain. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. Psalms, the psalms are poems, songs, and they're written as poetry. And when something is repeated in poetry, if you'll think back to 
you know, literature class in middle school and high school, your teacher probably told you, if the poet repeats something, it's the poet trying to get your attention and say, this is what's important. Well, that's what the psalmist is doing here. For the psalmist to repeat the cry of salvation from the introduction three times, an invitation to the Lord to restore Israel, to allow his face to shine upon them that they may be saved, tells us the meaning of the psalm, that salvation alone comes from the Lord. This refrain begins with restore us. That phrase, restore us, literally means make us turn around. So on three occasions here in the text, in this refrain, the psalmist cries out to the Lord, turn your people around. This isn't a cry just for the Lord to rebuild Israel to her former glory. This isn't a cry to the Lord to rebuild the line of David to its established place there in Jerusalem. This is a cry of repentance because this is what repentance is. To repent means to change the way that you think and to change the way that you think in such a way that your actions are affected. The picture of repentance is I am walking in one direction and I'm going to literally turn myself around to go in the other direction. And this is the cry of the psalmist. This is the cry of the people. Restore us, O God. Make us turn around. The people are asking for God to bring about repentance among his people. They recognize their great need for God, but that is not their only request. Turning back is but one part. Being turned around by God is but one part. The second request is that once again, God would show his favor to them. This is why he says, restore us, O God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. There are two pieces to the puzzle of salvation for the psalmist. One is this turning back, this make us turn around. The other is the favor and blessing of the Lord. Now, when the psalmist cries out that the Lord let his face shine upon them, his Israelite congregation, the gathering, the assembly, who would, have, who would have said this or sang this together, their minds would have gone to one place in Scripture and one place alone. It would have gone to Numbers chapter 6 in what is known as the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron, the priest of God during the time of Moses. We're told in number six that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. In number six, the Lord tells Moses to give Aaron a blessing, a continual blessing to speak over the people. And this ironic blessing, which becomes known as the priestly blessing, is used for centuries, millennia even, by Israelite priests. During the church age, it's been used now for more centuries in 
Catholic worship and Protestant churches as a blessing over the people of God that the Lord will let his face shine upon us. Why? Because in its simplicity, Aaron's blessing recognizes that without the gracious blessing of God, none of us can be saved. And this is what the psalmist recognizes. The psalmist recognizes in his refrain that we must be restored to God. We must be turned back to him and God must allow his face to shine upon us because his face shining upon us represents his gracious blessing in our lives. And when God does this, both of which are a work of God, turn us around, shine your face on us. Why? So that we might be saved. It is the Lord alone who can save in this way. This is the message of Psalm 80. God is able to save because he is able to turn the sinner back to himself. He is able to shine his good, gracious blessing upon those who come to him in faith. The Lord alone saves. The rest of the psalm just shows us how. In between these refrains, following that two-verse introduction, the psalmist is going to paint for us a picture of the past, the present, and the future, showing us how it is that God brings about salvation for his people. The middle section focuses on the Lord having planned his salvation story. Really, we will see this in two parts, looking at the middle part first, verses 8 through 11 where we see that the Lord is actively working in the establishment of his people to bring about their salvation. Here's what, the, here's what we're going to see in these verses, that the Lord is at work in bringing his people to the place where they are and establishing them there. Listen to this, starting in verse eight. And this is past tense. This is the work of the Lord from the, from the psalmist's point of view. It's past tense. The work of the Lord previous. You brought out a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. This section of, the, of this psalm looks back on the history of Israel. It is, in some ways, a reflection of the good old days. Now, everything is relative, right? The psalmist here in their moment of despair, in that particular moment, looks back upon the time of the Exodus and the establishment of the people of God in Israel and sees God working. And, and really views it in these lofty terms that God is at work and all of these great things are happening. But if you know, if you're familiar with this story, the people of God during those moments also knew great turmoil. They also knew great strife. They also knew great disobedience. They tried to do what their ancestors would do and often go it alone. And so one generation, looking back on a previous generation, kind of as the, the good old days, is right because it's seeing God at work, but it's also at times 
failing to recognize just the simple struggles that those people would have gone through. But it helps us to see as we look back, how should we see this? How should we see not only this passage, but the history of Israel is God works amongst a disobedient people that often rebelled and often tried to do things alone. How do we see God actually working in, in a providential way. And what we see is that God, throughout the generations of Israel, even in the midst of their disobedience, established them there in that place for a reason. He is the one working. The Lord is the active player in this stanza. Verses 8, 9, 10, and 11 are about his work. Look at these verses. He is the one, in verse 8, that brings them out of Egypt. He is the one who drove out the nations before them. He is the one that planted the vine in the promised land. The vine is a metaphor for Israel, the nation of Israel, the people of God. He prepared the ground for it to flourish. He is the one who has done this work. Israel didn't do this work. Israel didn't remove themselves from their captors in, in, uh, in Egypt. God did that. Israel isn't the one who sustained themselves in the wilderness. God is the one who did that. Israel isn't the one who drove out the nations that inhabited the promised land. God is the one who did that. God is the one who blessed them. He is the one who is crafting his story of salvation through establishing his people. Verses 10 and 11 tell us of the reach of, the, of this established vine. It says that it covers the mountains with its shade. The mountains in Israel arise on both sides. There are two mountain ranges in Israel that kind of run from top to bottom on one side of the nation and on the other. And so to say that the mountain, that the, that the vine covers the mountains with its shade, meaning all of Israel has, the people of God have spread out over all of the land, the mighty cedars with its branches, which were in the northern section of Israel. It sends out branches to the sea, that's the Mediterranean, on the other side of one mountain range, and, to, and it shoots to the river. This is the Jordan River on the other side of Israel. All of the promised land is covered with the vine of God. This past tense stanza, though, speaking about the work of God to establish his people, is surrounded by present tense questions. Questions that show us that the Lord actively works during trials of his people to bring about their salvation. So it is not only the work, the work of the Lord to establish his people, but the work of the Lord even in trials to do so. Look at verses four through six. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You make us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among us. The psalmist on behalf of the people relate the anguish of the nation to the Lord. It seems as if the Lord does not hear their prayers. It seems as if the Lord is angry with his people. It, it seems like the Lord is causing nothing but heartache and turmoil and pain. So much so that the psalmist in, in, in a poetic way says, 
You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure that all the people have for sustenance is their own sorrow. That All they have to live on, all that is keeping them going now is sorrow. This is, this is despair. Crying out to God, it seems as if, God, in this moment, you have abandoned us. Now, remember, they look back and they see the work of the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to see the work of the Lord when all around you seems to be falling apart. And that's where the psalmist feels. The psalmist is, the psalmist is communicating the way he feels, the way the nation feels. And it can be difficult for us to see the work of the Lord in the moments of dark sorrow. We see it in the past. We wonder if it's present, though, right now in this moment. On the other end of recounting what the Lord had done is verses 12 and 13, where the psalmist asks, why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it, and all that move in the field feed on it. This vine that had spread out to cover the mountains, to cover the oaks, from sea to river, all of the promised land has spread out on this. This vine represents the people of God being spread out there in the promised land, and yet it has now been ravaged. Its walls have been torn down. People just, the, the enemies of God, surrounding nations, just come in and take whatever they want. Most of the tribes of Israel by the point of this, by the time this psalm is written, have been taken away into captivity. It seems as if the vine is just being plucked around them, being ravaged by wild beasts, and yet God is still at work. One could say it is especially in these times that we see God at work. It's because God is pruning his vine It's because God is refining his vine by fire. He is preparing them for what is to come. And just as the psalmist there in this moment is able to look back on the Exodus and see God at work, we have the benefit of hindsight too. And we get to look back on this period of time, the period of great trial in Israel, where where the divided kingdom where one section known as Israel has already been conquered and eventually the section known as Judah will also be conquered. It may not have felt to them like God was working, but to us, we get to look back on that and say, oh, look at what God is doing. And the same is true in our lives. The same is true in our time. The same is true in our church. When it seems as if the Lord is pruning the vine, when it seems as if the Lord is refining us by fire, We must rest assured that God is still at work, that God is still the one telling his story of redemption, that he is still doing what he has promised to do, and that is to bring people into his family. God is still doing it. Maybe even especially during these dark moments, just like we see in Psalm 80, the Lord is at work because he is preparing his people for what he will do in the future. Because we've seen the past, we've seen the present, the future is now what comes into the psalmist's mind. As we see that the Lord will send 
we view it in past tense, has sent his saving Messiah. The psalmist's attention now in these next verses, 14 through 19, turn to the future. Verse 14 is a rephrasing of that triplet refrain. It calls on God to act in a specific way. We, having the benefit of hindsight, can see exactly how God works to answer the prayer of Psalm 80. And God works to answer the prayer of Psalm 80 by sending the Messiah to save his people. This is the answer to the question. This is the answer to the prayer. The people of God for centuries cried out that God would restore him, would restore them and would shine his face upon them. And God does so through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the answer to the prayer of Psalm 80. Let's see, and there's going to be two things here we see about how Jesus is this answer. First, the Lord sends the true vine to save his people. Look at verses 14 through 16. Turn again, O God of hosts. Look down from heaven and see. Have regard for this vine, the stock that your right hand planted, and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. They have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face. Where Israel saw themselves as the vine, they were but a preparatory vineyard because a true vine was coming. A new and better vine would be planted there in that place in the person of Jesus, where it seems like the nations had burned the vine and destroyed the vine. The Lord is the one who allowed them, yes, even used them to do so in preparation for a new vine that would sprout. And instead of just covering one land, it would cover the entire globe. Look at verse 15. The psalmist says, the stock that your right hand planted and for the son whom you made strong for yourself. Now that word translated as the son that you made strong for yourself in English is a, is a kind of a unique word in the Hebrew that this was written in. It does mean son, but it uses uh, an an agricultural word, because this is an uh, agrarian metaphor, right? The metaphor of a vine. And the son of the vine is a strong branch off of it. It's kind of the next generation of the vine. While the old may pass away, this new and strong vine will stand the test of time. And that is who the people of God were looking forward to. That is who we now know to be, Jesus himself. He is the true vine that saves his people. But we also see that the Lord sends not only a true vine, not only a Messiah, but he sends his own son to save his people. Consider verses 17 and 18. The psalmist says, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man, whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. So this begs the question, who is the vine 
who is this son of the vine, this new branch that will, that will come forth in the midst of turmoil when it seems the nations are ravaging the vine and burning it down. A, a new son, a new sprout will come and spread out across the land. Who will this be? It will be the very son of God, the man of your right hand, the son of man. This is Jesus. Who is the vine? It is the son of man made strong by the Lord. Jesus Christ is this man. Jesus used these terms for himself. The most common word that he used to describe himself was the son of man. We'll talk more of the son of man in the next series that we'll start in January because that language comes from Daniel. But it also finds itself here in Psalm 80. The son of man, this promised Messiah who is at his right hand, which by the way is where Jesus is right now. In Acts chapter five, we read from Peter and John before the Sanhedrin, they say to them, the God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Jesus is now at the right hand of God offering forgiveness to God's people because he is the true vine, the son of God sent to save the world from its sin. So what? Only through Jesus, the son of God and true vine, may we be restored and saved. It is only through Jesus that we are able to be turned back again. It is only through Jesus that we are able to see the shining face of God and his gracious blessing in our lives that make us right with him. In John chapter 15, Jesus talks about the true vine. And we know that Jesus often quoted the Psalms as he did uh, much of the rest of the Old Testament, but Jesus was uh, very common. Jesus very commonly quoted the Psalms. And one of the things that Jesus did in quoting from the Psalms was to show himself in the Psalms, to show how he was the fulfillment to their many messianic prophecies. Therefore, it's not a leap to believe that Jesus had Psalm 80 in mind when he tells his disciples that he is the true vine. Listen to what he says at the beginning of John 15. He says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You see, apart from Jesus, while we may seem like we have it figured out, 
where we may be like the middle section of Home Alone and we may be, you know, fooling and hurting the thieves and able to cook our own dinner and do our own shopping and take care of the house on our own. Ultimately, what do we realize? We are helpless without Jesus. Utterly so. Helpless without him. Because without him, we are a branch that withers and dies because he is the one and only true vine. The opportunity to be restored, turned back to God and to have his face shine upon you is found in the true vine alone. There is no salvation apart from him, but there is great blessing found in turning towards Christ. So here's my question for you today. During this Advent season, this time of anticipation, Christmas, are you trusting in the true vine, the son of God alone to be turned back to God, to experience his shining face in your life? Or are you trusting in something else? Because anything else is a false vine that will ultimately shrivel up and die in this world. But Jesus died in your place, paying the price for your sin and for mine so that we, the branches of God, may be connected to the true vine. And yes, like Israel in Psalm 80, we will still experience despair and turmoil and sorrow in this world, but we will always have hope that God is working that he is bringing about his salvation story here in our world and we get to be a part of it through Jesus alone. So I would implore you, my friend, find salvation in Jesus Christ alone today for the remission of your sin for he is your only hope, the true vine of God, the only son of God who can restore you to a right relationship with the Father. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that your word is true, that it instructs us, and it instructs us here in this moment by showing us the work of God, past, present, and future, reminding us that we cannot do it alone. Oh, how people have tried, century after century, generation after generation, thinking we were able, but being reminded that we are not. Would you help us now, God, to trust in your son alone, the true vine who brings us to God? Would you call men and women, boys and girls, to salvation in that truth today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.